Hey there, it's Raleigh. I want to catch you before this episode to tell you about our new and improved bonus podcast, More Mercy. Each week, I break down a MercyCast episode and show how it not only intersects with Scripture, but how it impacts our daily lives. This short devotional episode is only $3 a month, which is like $4 less than a cup of coffee at the Mermaid Place. To access it, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes. Remember, no matter what you're going through, there's always more mercy. And now, on with the show. And we are back. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. There is no one standalone issue. So many of us, we have causes that we care about, but if we aren't careful, then we will reduce them to one thing rather than understanding the complexities that surround them. For example, as you know, I have dedicated my life to addressing human trafficking, and it's very easy to think, Human trafficking is just people being taken, but we miss the things that are underneath it. We miss the vulnerabilities that play into it. Cyclical poverty, being unhoused, living in the foster system, being a new immigrant to a community. These are things that make us explicitly vulnerable. And if we miss these complexities, then we will miss the issue in real time. Metasol was the client services director of a pregnancy resource center located in a large city in New Jersey. She thought she had developed a pretty good understanding of the pro-life cause and the many issues surrounding it. She felt confident, happy, and she was fulfilled with the work she was doing. However, on November 2nd, 2010, she received an email from a client asking for advice. Though the client seemed to have it all together, her email showed otherwise. She was scared and alone. She was living paycheck to paycheck, She had decided to keep her child, yes, but she didn't want her baby to suffer because she was suffering. Metasol was shocked. How could she miss these other factors? How did she not see the complexities of the situation? The email not only broke her heart, it shook her confidence and sent her hurling towards a downward spiral. Joining me today is Metasol Maldonado Rodriguez. She is the co-founder of Renew Life Center, which formed a partner with Pregnancy Resource Centers to provide additional support and educational programs that women need to overcome generational poverty. She is also the author of the new book, Beyond Her Yes, Reimagining Pro-Life Ministry to Empower Women and Support Families in Overcoming Poverty. Madison, welcome to the Mercy Cast. Thank you, Raleigh. I'm happy to be here. What I love about your book and what I love about your ministry is that you are not looking at this as a one issue issue, really. You're not looking at this through a reductionistic lens. You are are seeing all the complexities that surround that. And so did this perspective for you, did this start to shape after you got that email? Yeah. I hate to say it, but that's true. You know, before I received that email, I really did not notice. They were there. These issues were there, but I hadn't noticed them. I think like many um, of us in, in our pro-life movement, we, we were looking at that baby and we are hoping to get that yes. We're hoping to touch a woman's heart to, to choose life. And I don't think we often give enough thought to what's happening 
long-term with that. And yeah, I hate to say it, but it's true. Until that email was a huge eye-opener for me. And one of the big critiques that the pro-life movement gets is that they are not thinking about these other issues that may be impacting the person and making the person feel that they have no choice. That's true. I mean, that is a criticism. But, you know, to that, I always say nobody's criticizing the Susan G. Coleman Foundation for not addressing, you know, uh, I don't know, another cancer, brain cancer. They they do what they do, right? They address breast cancer. So um, there are many... Right. There's a scope. So, so that is true. And, and, you know, the purpose of my book was to say uh, what, when my eyes were open to these additional needs, it wasn't like, Oh, gee, the pregnancy center is failing. We should be doing more. That's not the solution. The solution is not for the pregnancy center to do more. They have their scope as well. The, the solution is getting the body of Christ involved to surround these women. A pregnancy center can't serve a woman for 18 years, you know? But yes, she may need 18 years of support because she signed up for 18 years of parenting and beyond. So it's bringing in additional, expanding what we think pro-life ministry is. Pro-life ministry isn't just the pregnancy center or the sidewalk advocate. Pro-life ministry, I think, is the church. It's the responsibility of the church of Christ, I believe, to come around and provide the additional support. Well, I love how you're approaching this because so many of us, whether we want to or not, we kind of operate in a transactional framework. We think, as long as I just do this one thing, then I've got my gold star. Then I can move forward with my day. I could go to the beach, go to the movies, whatever. But I did my good deed for today. But God in his word really shows us that loving others is not about a transactional framework. If anything, it's relational. It's very relational in its orientation. And we see that with Jesus and how he interacted with vulnerable people. And so what I love about your perspective now, post this email, is you're going in and you're saying, churches, you were founded to care for people relationally. And we want to address these needs from the womb to the tomb the entire way. We want to say that, yes, There is a sanctity of life, but we want to respect the entire life. And this person is going to need years of care that one resource center will not be able to provide. But the church is in a place to love vulnerable people if the church is willing to do that. And you are coming alongside of churches and you are helping them really see the need, but also respond to it. Raleigh, you're absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better. It is the role of the church to do that. And and oftentimes, look, we need those checks. Oftentimes, you know, someone wants to write a check during Sanctity of Human Life Sunday for their local pregnancy center. They write a check and say, whoop, I'm done. I, I, yeah. I, I supported the pro-life movement. That's great. Continue writing the checks. We need them. They need them. But we also, we need more than that, you know? And it's not we, these women need more than that, you know? I mean, in in the email that I got from Amanda in the book, I mean, this was a woman who was educated with a college degree. She had a career. She was an elementary school teacher. She had so many things going for her that most women who walk into a pregnancy resource center don't have. And the reason I know that is because pregnancy resource center provide free services. And they're usually in urban or in areas, urban settings or or poor areas. And if a woman needs to walk in to get a free pregnancy test, that's pretty telling that she's not in a good place economically, right? So imagine if a woman with the resources that Amanda had 
couldn't make it, was struggling, was starting to regret her decision for choosing life because she said in her email, I don't see how I can continue. Feeling fear, depression, loneliness, stress. And you know, what's funny is that in a conversation with Amanda, I asked her, I said, what had, what propelled you to send me that email? Because I had been doing this for over 10 years. I've seen thousands of women at the pregnancy center and no one ever stopped and kind of called me out because I took her email as her calling me out, calling out my organization, calling out my faith and saying, Hey, I walked in here. And in a nice way, she's saying, you talked me into this. You talked me into choosing life. And now I find myself with no support, no help. I'm living paycheck to paycheck, financially unstable. And you know what? It, I like the way she ended it. It broke my heart. She said, I don't want to be a failure. Can you help me get on track? If you're a parent listening to this podcast, you know, as a parent, your worst nightmare is to feel like a failure in front of your children. And when she said that, it hit me. And I, I, that's when I, it, I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing here with these hundreds and hundreds of women I'm seeing a year leading them to choose life? And yet I have no idea what that life looks like afterwards. Well, not just her life, but the life of the baby, right? When you think about that children born in poverty are more likely, and poverty and single mother homes are more likely to not graduate from high school experience a teen pregnancy, join a gang, end up in jail. If we're not there to intervene, if we're not there helping her create some sort of stability, relationships, spiritual guidance, then that's really what's, what, what, what they're facing ahead. That's what's there. That's what's there for them. I, I say that if the church doesn't come around these children and these moms, gang members do. Yeah, there will be a family that surrounds there them. Will be, will exactly. it be a positive family? Will it be exactly. a functional or dysfunctional family? Yep, yep. And I think that we're missing such a huge opportunity, you know, with these families. It's such a huge opportunity for service, for evangelism, for the gospel. It's just, it's an amazing opportunity that the church has. Not to blame the church too much. I've spoken to pastors that say, Marisol, I want to do more, but I don't know what. I don't know how. That's one of the reasons I found that Renew Life Center was to be able to partner with churches to show them how. You, you want to help. This is how. Mentoring is huge for these moms. Can we get some of your retired or stay-at-home moms, congregants, you know, to mentor and to do things like that? What's important about this conversation is that This didn't come from a book for you. This didn't come from you sitting in classes. This came from you having a breaking point in a sense, you hitting a wall and realizing that you missed it, that you didn't see it. And so many times in our lives, we hit these points and it's so easy to almost drown ourselves in the shame, right? Like it's so easy to think, oh my gosh, I'm not good at this. I might as well quit. I'm going to get a job at a gas station, which I'm not making fun of people who work at gas stations. That's great work. And I'm thankful. I have a very robust view of vocation. So I'm, I appreciate that you're out there doing it. But some of us, we just don't know what to do. And we may try to just create the least amount of footprint because now we're feeling like a failure. But you didn't let that stop you. If anything, you looked at it and now you're looking at it through a new lens. I love how you said, well, if someone's coming in for a free pregnancy test, that says something about their financial situation right there. Yeah. And this person, her financial situation was way better than most. And she was still struggling. 
She was still living paycheck to paycheck. She is now having to buy things that she never had to buy before. Now she's thinking, okay, what do I do? How do I do it? She sends you this email. And when you get the email, she was pushing back. But do you think that's what she was doing in that moment now? You know, I I know I don't. I, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with being called out. No, you know, not at all. And I think she was calling us out. She was she was saying in a very nice way. She was saying, hey, and she said an email. She goes, hey, I was walking a really thin line. I'm having this baby when I walked into your center. I spoke to your counselor, Janet, there. You know, she convinced me, you know, that life is precious and that that God is going to be with me, that he's going to help me. He's going to provide for me. You know, like we, we say all these things as Christians, but we got to realize that we are the hands and feet of Christ and he is going to meet all those needs, but it's through us. And I think she was calling us out on that. She, she said that she doesn't know how to continue to move forward with this decision to have the baby. I'm in New Jersey. She was five months pregnant at this time. Abortion is still legal. So she still could have changed her mind. So besides the fact that it blew my mind about her economic condition, it blew my mind that she had to say yes more than one time. Every month, she had to say yes again to this pregnancy. Every month that she was worried about how am I going to get supplies? She still had to say yes again. Who's going to support me? Who's going to watch the baby? I, I can't afford this. And she had to keep saying yes to it with every roadblock she hit. That's some, that's another lesson I learned. It's a woman doesn't say yes once to life. She says yes every single month until she delivers that baby. And if we think that just because a woman walked in our center and said yes today, that that means yes three months from now, if we're not keeping in contact with her and we're not supporting her, that's not true. That is not true at all. She may have aborted it later down the line when things got too tough and nobody was there for her. In a recent episode with Neil Salzman of the Rest Initiative, we were talking about self-care and he said something that blew my mind. It's changed the way I viewed self-care. And he said that we can't do proper self-care without allowing other people to tend to us. We need people yeah. to walk with us. We need people to help us not only see our needs, but help us meet our needs sometimes. And with you saying that this person is consistently having to say yes with every challenge that may come her way, she is basically reaffirming her yes every day. This really speaks to all who have children, right? Because there are days where it's just not good and you're looking at the alternative and you're like, this could happen. And I think with many, it's very easy to have this reductionistic view of the pro-life argument and just see it like, well, that person's not choosing to have their child because they're just a bad person or- Or they're selfish. I hear that a lot. Or they're selfish. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I've heard that as well. But as I'm talking to you, I'm hearing, well, this is happening, that's happening. And this person is, is choosing to go forward, even though maybe a lot of the voices around them are saying otherwise. And I mean, many of- the people that I've known over the years in the anti-trafficking movement, people I've just kind of met, you know, maybe at events or at one-offs, sometimes they'll tell me their story. And I can't tell you how many times people have shared this story of how they got pregnant and they were forced to terminate the pregnancy and it hurt them, but they had to keep going. And then as people would find out, that there was a termination of pregnancy in their life, they would feel shame. That person sometimes may be well-meaning. I, I want to be gracious here and say they're well-meaning, but maybe, maybe not. 
that person would basically just berate them and just really just almost hurl insults at them. And why would you want Jesus, if that's what you're seeing, why would you want to have the church involved if that's what you're seeing? So I love how you're saying, no, we want to see the church do this right. We want to see the church do this in a way that is relational, loving, meeting the needs of those most vulnerable, becoming a family. And have you seen much success in your ministry as you are working with churches to kind of help them see it in this perspective? Yes, I have. It's amazing what our volunteers experience as mentors and the churches that partner with us. But it's not just for their benefit. It's for our benefit. I mean, how we grow, how the Lord shape us, how we we learn more about God. I always say that what my pastor preaches on Sunday, I get to put into practice Monday through Saturday. So I get to see those concepts that my pastor is preaching. Okay. I see them playing out in the lives of these people. I see God using me, my volunteers. I mean, so I'm in an urban setting and I have retired women that will come from suburbia. And, you know, they're like very, very white. And they'll right. come and they'll say, Marisol, I really want to help you, but I don't think these girls can relate to me. I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to like me. And I always say, listen, your job is to show up. The rest is God's problem. You just show up. And guess what happens? They show up. Of course, initially it's a little awkward, right? People are getting to know each other, but then it just, it's a love fest. People respond to love. I don't care what your color is. I don't care what your background is. People respond to love. Mm-hmm. And when they see you there week after week on their side, right, advocating for them, helping them meet their goals, helping them set goals, helping them think through problems, you know, just encouraging them, sending them a text message that says, hey, Jesus loves you and I love you too. You know, people respond to that. And these women who think that are unrelatable to our urban ladies, they're not unrelatable. And I see these beautiful relationships flourish. I have mentors that have been mentoring the same woman for eight years. That's eight years of relationship. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's what these women need. Long-term people that come. And not every, I don't want to scare people. Not every mentor has to volunteer for eight years, but we're not requiring it. It just naturally happened. Because they're becoming friends. They're becoming friends. It's not a job. It's not a mission. It's not a job. It's not a goal. You're just making friends with somebody and you're living life with them. And I have mentors that come and they're around for six months. I have others that are around for eight years. So if things play out differently, but I definitely see huge success in when the church gets involved. And it's a way of evangelizing it. You know, when you tell single moms, especially women in these situations, oh, just go to church. Here's a list of churches. Find one near you. That's not very um, no. productive. But when you have someone who's become your friend and say, hey, you want to come to church with me on Sunday? That's a game changer. That's a game changer. So yeah, I, you know, hey, I'll pick you up. So it, it just be, it's just doing life with people. And I think it's such a beautiful expression of, of, of our faith, of, of Jesus Christ and, and of the church in general that, that people will, women will respond to that. Children will respond to that. And I, I think we are, we are just missing out. Like this is not a chore. It's not another thing I have to do and my long schedule of to do's. It is a blessing to be out there serving these women. And I always say, people, try it. Don't don't just try it. And you're going to see that you are far more blessed than you could ever imagine by going out there and investing in other people's lives. Well, and I love when we talk about this from the lens of 
neighboring. You're loving your neighbor. You're caring for your neighbor. You're helping churches understand who their neighbor is, who's vulnerable. But you're also, I loved how you were sharing the story of the people who come from the suburbs into the city. I lived in Manhattan for seven years. I just love talking to someone from Jersey right now. This is like, this is doing my heart well. And, and especially when you were like, well, sometimes you need to be called out. I'm like, oh, man, I miss home. But um, it's, I used to tell people, one of the things I love about the Northeast is you never have to worry about where you stand with people. They will always tell you there is no such thing as passive aggression in the Northeast. It may be aggressive aggression, but it is there and you know. And so. You're right. And, and what was interesting is even in that, when you're telling the story of the people who are coming from the suburbs and they're coming into the city, you're saying your superpower is your presence. Just be there. Just be there. And you basically highlighted two tools, the tool of loving someone and the tool of friendship. And when you actually are serious about that, and when you create an atmosphere of belonging, yeah, you're not going to want to leave because honestly, making friends is hard. It's tricky. And sometimes we think we can only make friends with people who are identical to us. But what would happen if we realized that people who've gone through different experiences, one, we can minister to them, sure, but they're going to minister to us. And we're going to learn so much from that person that we would never learn if we played it safe and just cared for the people who cared for us or cared for the people who looked like us. We will be challenged to love others, love God, and embrace the gospel like we never have when we engage people at the point of vulnerability, not only their vulnerability, but ours. One of the things I tell people pretty consistently is it's the things that you think disqualify you from caring for people that actually qualify you. So if yes. you're thinking, well, I don't know if I can do this, you're in the right place. You're absolutely right. I hear that a lot. It's like, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm able, I don't know if I have anything to offer. I'm like, can you fill out a application? Do you know how, did you help your 17 year old get their driver's license? Yeah. Well, guess what? We need that too, you know, because we have women in their twenties and thirties who aren't driving yet and they're trying to get a driver's license. So it's, it's really basic skills. Your presence, you said it beautifully. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that. Your presence is your superpower. Your friendship is your superpower. And they just need help with basic life skills. Things we do all the time, open a bank account. What does that look like? And these are women who have never had a bank account, never had a driver's license. And we're just helping them be, become a part of community. Yeah, because the church doesn't have to do everything right. Like I've known some churches, they're like, well, we want to address this need, but we would need $100,000 a year to address this need. And I said, you don't. And they're like, what? Because they've actually, I've had people tell me, we can't do anything to combat human trafficking because we're going to need at least 200000 a year. I don't know who put that idea in their head. I don't. I think it was some well-meaning nonprofit organization which said, well, this is what you'll need. No, that's what the organization needs. The church is in a place where they can, yes, have a congregational approach, but also a collaborative one through which they are partnering with local stakeholders already in the community who have the resources but they need the partners. They need the people to come alongside of them. I remember one time a friend of mine in federal law enforcement reached out and said, hey, we're doing the rescues. We're connecting people to aftercare. But what we need is 
a place where people can get spiritual care because we're realizing that that is an aspect of those who have experienced the deep trauma that many of them want a spiritual place where they can go and be cared for. And the church is just that place. We can major on our strengths. We can shore up our weaknesses, but we should never run from vulnerable people because when we do that, we're running not only from our purpose, but we're running from the vulnerable Savior who has come to save us. Amen. I'm thinking if every church participated, if every church got connected to an organization like mine, I mean, I think a lot of churches are already connected to the pregnancy center. That's a common knowledge. Yeah. What's up and coming is what I'm doing, right? So if the church was also able to connect to organizations like mine that are doing what we call like the aftercare, after the yes care, I mean, we're not going to bombard you with 500 women. Like they imagine, oh, if we do this, there's going to be 500 women, single moms in our congregation that we you know what? It may be two a year, you know, because there's so, if every church got involved, then it's like many hands make light work, right? So yeah, it's not, it's not that scary of a number. I think that if every church says, you know what, we're going to partner with an organization like Renew and we want to support two single moms or three single moms. We want to mentor them and become family to them and their children. That's not a lot. That's not a lot at all. So I think that we get paralyzed sometimes because the problem is big. It is big, but churches are bigger. I mean, churches are so abundant. We just need everyone to pitch in just a little bit. And it's very easy. I have been a pastor. I've been a seminary. I have been ordained. You know, I've done all those things. I've checked the boxes and I've loved being in ministry. But one thing I've found just in my own ministry, and I've seen this with my peers, is it can be very easy to really just depend on your own training and experience rather than God, rather than the Holy Spirit, rather than trusting God to provide. And so we play out this narrative, like you're saying, where we're like, well, we're going to get 500 people and there's no way we can meet these needs and we might as well not do it. It's like I I tell people, you're either going to do nothing or you're going to do the first thing that comes to mind, which is always the worst thing. What does it look like to do something? And I think that's what you are sharing. You're saying, no, we want to come in and we want to help you. And we want to help you walk step by step because you're not only walking with people who've experienced abortions or who could experience abortions, but you're going with churches saying, we want to help you care for people who are vulnerable and are going through it. I love in your book how basically it's your tagline that saying yes to life is only the beginning. And then you go into this idea of how economics and abortion are intrinsically linked. And I believe this is something that many people miss, which is why you wrote a book on it. But could you tell me a little bit about that idea? How are they connected? Well, first of all, I think it was the Guttmacher Institute that gave the statistic that two out of the three reasons women give for having abortion are based on economics, jobs, and um, being worried about the future. That's that's. You know, one way we see that that link there. The other thing, too, is is one thing we know at pregnancy centers, sadly, is that women come back again and again. So you may lead one woman to choose life five times. So we say she's a serial life chooser, which is wonderful. But why is she back five times, five different pregnancies and sometimes five different men? That is linked to poverty. A lot of people say, well, you know, these women are promiscuous. 
And they're just sleeping around with all this men when the reality is because their needs aren't met in a safe and healthy way, they turn to the one thing that they know, and that is a man. So here you are, a single woman, a man comes and says, you know, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Let's move in together. Things are going to be great. Well, what are you going to do? You have a kid already that you can't provide for. And someone here is offering you some kind of stability. So you're going to go with that, right? Until what happens? Until he no longer wants to do that anymore. And then he moves on. Now you're left with two kids. And then the third guy comes along. So it's, it's a cycle of women going from relationship to relationship, not necessarily because they lack moral, <laughs> they lack morals, but because they have needs that aren't being met. They don't know how to provide for themselves and their children. They don't have the education or the resources. So that's, that's one thing. Also, you have to think that when women live in poverty and they live in this, these urban areas that have high crime, having a man in your house is one of the most important things you can have in your home. Better than money, actually, because we know that homes in these high crime areas that don't have a man in the house are more likely to be broken in. The family is more likely to be harassed. So there's a lot of things that happen in poverty, particularly to women and children that make them make decisions that don't make sense to us. You know, I mean, I I hear a lot of people say, well, if you're so poor, why are you having so many kids with so many different men? Well, that's how she gets to provide for the kids she has. Why is this man sleeping in your house? Why do you live with him? He doesn't work. He's just living off of you. Well, he provides me with safety. He doesn't provide me with money, but he provides me with a sense of safety. So there's a lot of things about the lives of these women that aren't in poverty that we have no clue about. We don't understand. And that's why if, if, if we want to address abortion, we have to address poverty because that's what lead, that's what's leading people to the abortion clinic. It's just even, even Planned Parenthood themselves will tell you <laughs> that two out of the three reasons are based on economics, you know, and then there's these other needs. It's, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it's very easy to assume someone's narrative without listening to their story. And when a lot of people approach this issue, they're going to look at people and whether they mean to or not, they're going to assume that person's story. They're going to say, well, this person just wants to be with multiple men. They don't have self-control or whatever ignorant response that that person could have. They're looking at that and they're making a choice for that person. But like you said, They don't know what that person is going through. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm glad to have you on the podcast, because I really love it when people can look at something and see it holistically and say, the thing that you see is way bigger. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There is something underneath that if we don't pay attention to it, we are going to miss what's actually happening. If we don't pay attention to it, we're going to miss how we could best care for that person. And I love that that is what you're doing, even tying the economics into it. Because again, you're taking it away from this narrative of this person did this just because they are a insert shameful word here. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, no, this is a person who felt like they had no options. And you know what? They may have had no options, but we're trying to help churches give them options. Yes, give them options the safety and the security they need so they don't have to go from man to man to man to 
try to meet those needs. A lot of these women, like we said, they don't have an education. They don't have a career path. And we're talking also about immigrants, women who come into this country and are immigrants and are not even established here. It, you know, it's a lot deeper than we think. It's easy to look at people and judge them by the choices that we see them make. It's so easy until you ask the questions, until you create relationships that are deep enough and safe enough that you could say, hey, why are you with this man? Why does he live in your house? And then they have this, they're in a safe relationship with you that they could tell you. They say, well, I feel safe when he's there. I know my house won't get broken into. I know my kids won't get picked on because there's a man that lives in this house. Well, and when we're just putting labels on people, it's very easy. It's very easy to miss the trauma that someone's experienced. When you're just affixing a label on someone, you don't care about that person's trauma. You don't care about the scars that they have. You don't care about the emotional baggage that they've been carrying their whole life and they haven't had much help with. You don't care because ultimately you just care about what you think. You're not really thinking of the other person. And when you think about it through a lens of trauma, that does change the situation because we have all been through various levels of trauma in our lives. And that has shaped our decisions, that shaped our actions. Well, if that works for us, why does that not work for others? And rather than being compassionate, many can look at this and enter into it with a lens of judgment. How would you encourage people who want to care for their neighbors who could feel like they have no other option but to terminate their pregnancy? I think they, the first thing that people have to do, and it's the first thing we do for people who want to volunteer, is you have to learn about poverty. You have to learn about what poverty does to people. Poverty does, it affects your intelligence, you know, your IQ, especially in children. It affects your, your, your health greatly. I mean, people in poverty are more diabetes, more high blood pressure, more chronic heart problems, you know? So you really have to understand what the world is like. We tend to assume that people in poverty have the ability to make the same choices we can make. They just choose to make different ones and are usually bad. You know, but that's not the case. They don't have the, uh, they don't have the same options you have. They don't have the same choices you have. So really the, our first thing is to say, before we want you to mentoring somebody, we want you to really understand what is the root cause of poverty. And it's not just the lack of money because we know there's poverty of spirit, right? Poverty of relationship and money, of course. So, so poverty is, is in different areas of our lives, right? We want just people to understand, to have a real understanding what poverty is, what it's like to walk in their shoes before you actually become, come in relationship with them. What is the mindset of poverty? People in poverty, they see the world differently and they respond to it differently than we do. And we need to get into their head, so to speak and see what is what is their world like. And then we have to adapt to that initially in our relationship, not them adapt to us. Well, and when we think about poverty, again, from our frames of reference, depending on your situation, your financial situation, you might just see poverty as a material poverty, but we right. miss different forms of poverty. When a lot of people who are impoverished will talk about their poverty, it's generally a poverty of relationships that they talk about. They talk about feeling isolated. They talk about feeling alone. Money comes and goes, but they miss that community. They miss those people 
coming into their lives and helping them, walking alongside of them, or just being there. There's nothing better than to be sitting with friends and you don't have to say anything because you know you're accepted. But when you're experiencing poverty of relationship, you don't have that. So you're alone and you run to anything to survive. You talk about wearing the shoes of another. And I thought that was an interesting thing because a big part of your story is that you grew up in generational poverty. And how has your experience given you compassion for the people that you serve? I grew up in generational poverty with a single mom who had a lot of kids by various different men. So she, in essence, is the woman that I'm serving. Mm. And, and I know, I mean, and if anybody who knew my mother knows that my mother is, was one of the most shyest, timid woman that you've ever met. She's not an out there party girl, but my mom had no education. She had no, no skills. The only thing she knew how to do was take care of kids, clean and cook. So there was always someone coming around that wanted to help her. And she just formed these serial relationships with men. So I, I, and what, what's funny, you know, the phrase, you know, don't forget where you came from. You, you yes. hear that. Yeah. Well, guess what? I forgot where I came from mm. because this should have been obvious to me at the center, growing up the way I grew up, growing up in generational poverty. So me and my siblings are the first generation in my family history to even graduate high school. So that's how bad it was. So I grew up in poverty and I was, I was able to go to college and I got a job in IT and did pretty good for myself. But I got a job in IT because through the help of someone at church. So this is where church came in. And, and what I'm telling you about the church, I lived it. I lived it. There was a small storefront church in Newark, New Jersey okay. that embraced my mother, the single woman with a bunch of kids with a bunch of different last names. They embraced her and they took her in. They showed her how to, the ladies in church showed her how, how to open a bank account. They showed her how to apply for social services so she didn't have to depend on a man anymore. They showed her so many things. They made sure we all graduated high school. One of the men at church helped me get a job in IT and so forth and so forth. So this is what happens. I'm living proof of what happens when the church community comes and they embrace a single mother and her children. In just one generation, they ended generational poverty. They ended the lack of education. They ended dependence on government assistance. Just like that. One, one church, and, and it was a poor storefront church in Newark. I used to affectionately call it the welfare church because most of the congregants were on welfare. You had a few middle-class congregants, but those that were there, they, they served. So we are living proof of that. But then you fast forward 40 years later, I'm sitting in a pregnancy center in the same city I grew up in, serving the same women, and I'm blind to it. It's like, I forgot where I came from. I forgot how hard it was. I forgot the lack of choices. I forgot the language barrier. I forgot the the isolation. I forgot the shame. I forgot the shame I felt every time I had to accompany my mom to the welfare office because I had to translate for her because she didn't speak English. I forgot all of that. And that email was a slap in my face saying, Marisol, wake up and remember where you came from. You were called back to who you were. I was called back. It was painful. Yeah, it's got to be, right? That that does not sound pleasant. That sounds like a very tough moment of actually dying to yourself and realizing what is important. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so easy to forget where you came from. It's the easiest thing in the world. 
Yeah, we usually say that to rich people, millionaires and movie stars, don't forget where you came from. You know what? Even as Christians, don't forget where you came from. You were a wretched sinner before you came to Christ. You know, don't forget where you came from. God is good. That's all I have to say is God is good. And the church has a tremendous opportunity for evangelism and serving these women because pregnancy centers are not churches. They do share the gospel and, and, and we try to share the gospel as well, but we need to get people in church so they can come to know Christ because it's not just about saving lives. It's about saving souls and it's about transforming them as well. And that is the job of the church of Jesus Christ. One of the things that my organization, Let My People Go, does is we train churches to better care for their neighbors who are vulnerable to exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so many churches are well-meaning, but they just don't know where to start. And that can be really scary. But I love with, that's where like my heart, like I, I'm hearing what you're doing and I, I'm just, I'm applauding. I'm for it because mm-hmm. going into a church and saying, hey, this is how you can stop generational poverty in one generation by giving community, by giving training, by loving and serving people, by being there, by giving your friendship over to someone else. That is so important. And for so many of us, it can be scary. But what I love is, in a sense, it's way more complicated, but it's also way easier than you would ever imagine. It's just being. It's just being. Like, we're so focused on doing and I've had this really terrible dad joke in my head all day long. I've been like, well, we're, we're called human beings, not human doings for a reason. <laughs> I don't know why, but I felt the need to say that on this podcast, <laughs> that just be with someone, be there, be present. And that is where love grows. That's where friendship grows. That's where community grows. Invest in that. Even if you're a little scared at first because you're uncomfortable because you've never done this. You don't have to worry about doing the big grandiose thing. Just focus on the person in front of you. Yeah. And you know what? They're scared too. I just want to say that they're scared too. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, they're, they're very scared too. So it's like two people feeling vulnerable and, and growing from that. Yep. Because I've found that at points in my life where I was in desperate need of help, where I didn't have a backup plan. There was no one to help me. Going to others for help was hard. When I was in New York, my apartment burned down and I was functionally unhoused. I was, yeah, I had, I didn't know where to go. There was nowhere for me to go. And I remember I wasn't on the street, but I was couch surfing and that that was tricky because sometimes the door didn't lock. There was, it didn't really sleep well. But I was like, I'm getting like, 1% of what people on the street are experiencing. But for me, there was a moment where I was talking to a peer who ran an organization working with those experiencing homelessness in the city. And he, in a very careful and cautious tone, but also caring tone, said, Raleigh, you are someone who could be a client for us because you lost everything to fire. You have nothing and you have nowhere to live. So we could help you. And in that moment, I just remember I felt so many things because it had suddenly become real because he wasn't joking. He was like, you're in need and you are on the same level as many of our clients. And it was helpful for me because it was no longer an us and them or I'm up here and people are down here. I was like, no, we're all one medical emergency away or one fire away from needing someone's help. And so I think when we come as a neighbor and we help people, we want to do that from a 
perspective of how do I want to receive love? How do I want to be cared for? Because this could happen tomorrow. As we end this conversation, I would love for you to give some advice to those of our listeners who may be feeling pressure and they're feeling trapped and maybe some advice to those who maybe have terminated a pregnancy in their past and they're processing that. Well, I have to tell you, if you're feeling pressure or trapped, I know that I know those feelings. I know those feelings. I would say you are not alone. You're definitely not alone. And if you're listening to this cast, I would say that to some degree, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, and to lean on him and not only to lean on him, but to get help. There's resources out there. You, there's a trusted friend. There's a pregnancy resource center. Now for me, I'm speaking hindsight, right? Hindsight is 2020, right? I, my daughter that I considered aborting is now 28 years old. There is no amount of pressure or financial discomfort that should merit the loss of a life, you know? And it's easy to say on my end over here, but I just want to encourage women that are, that are feeling trapped, pressured during a pregnancy that, that life is, it, you know, life is precious a hundred percent of the time, all the time. We just got to get past the hard part. You know, the hard part is it, there is a hard part, but you could, you could get past that and then you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. The post-abortive woman, I would say, man, God died for that sin too. He died for all sin and he died for that sin. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend a post-abortion Bible study or a post-abortion retreat that pregnancy resource centers have. If you look up your local pregnancy resource center, they usually have a Bible study called Forgiven and Set Free. There's Rachel's Vineyard for our Catholic friends and there just there are resources out there for you to process that, and I highly recommend you do because it will be the best thing you've ever done for yourself, and you will walk away from that truly understanding the forgiveness of Christ and and be able to to walk forward. It, it's something that could really trap you and hold you back if you don't really resolve that. But we love you. I mean, we love you, and and we want to come alongside you. During that journey, that's another journey too. It's not just the, the journey that you choose life. There's a journey for those who didn't. And they also need support, love, care. And we, we want to give you that as well. Metasauce, thank you so much for joining the Mercy Cast. Thank you, Riley. It was a pleasure to talk to you. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time. Have mercy on yourselves and each other.